Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to episode 342 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Thank you so much for joining me for the concluding part of our story from last week which comes from Bradford, studying murder. Well, there's no need to guess the month and year, and there are no adverts, so let's get straight to the story. If you recall last week, 36-year-old Suzanne Blamiris went missing in Bradford, and a caretaker at the block of flats where 40-year-old Stephen Griffiths lived witnessed her being murdered by Griffiths in the corridor outside his flat. Shortly afterwards, Suzanne's remains were found dumped in a nearby river. Griffiths was waiting calmly for the police to arrest him, and once in custody, Griffiths was boastful, saying, I've killed more. I've killed a lot more than Susan Blumeris. I've killed loads. Peter Sutcliffe came a cropper in Sheffield. So did I, but at least I got out of the city. He told police officers that Suzanne was gone. He said he'd eaten some of her, adding, that's part of the magic. Griffiths also told the interviewing officers he was only going to talk about five Bradford cases. Of course, understandably, detectives were desperately looking through all missing persons cases in the area to see if they could be linked to Griffiths. And particularly, they were now linking Suzanne's death with two other missing local sex workers, 43-year-old Susan Rushworth and 31-year-old Shelley Armitage. Susan had vanished the previous June, then just a month before Griffiths was arrested, Shelley Armitage also disappeared. So just who were these two missing women? Susan Rushworth disappeared on June the 22nd, 2009, and was never seen alive by her family again. The mum and grandma was last seen walking between Manningham Lane and Lister Park in Bradford, not far from where Griffiths lived. Susan had been married, but her husband had been violent towards her and the marriage ended and Susan had become addicted to heroin when she got in with the wrong crowd. This wasn't until she was in her 30s. Her mum Christine said, Without the drugs, she was just a normal person and a lovely caring mum. But with the heroin addiction, this took over her life and she spiralled downwards. Her daughter also suffered from drug addiction, heroin and crack cocaine and began selling sex on the streets of Bradford at just 18 to fund this addiction. Susan had understandably been absolutely horrified to hear this at first but in time Susan worked with her daughter with both of them selling sex. When she disappeared her daughter was 21 and her son was just 9. She also had a third child who lived with their dad and she also had three young grandchildren. At the time of her disappearance, Susan was making real progress to turn her life around. She'd begun to control her heroin habit and had managed to go six weeks without using drugs and was starting to look and feel better, so much better. Her mum, Christine, had tried all she could to help her daughter beat heroin 
and had paid out over £3,000 for rehab for her. It was looking promising, and this meant that Susan was once again seeing the grandchildren that she adored, but then she just disappeared. Christine said, The day she went missing, she said she was going out to get some medicine and would be back soon, but she never came home. That was the last time I saw her. At the time of her disappearance, she wasn't working and she was being treated for her addiction. But Susan suffered from epilepsy and it seems she had lapsed after becoming very low following an epileptic fit and on the very day she disappeared, she had called her drug dealer. At Christmas time following her disappearance, Susan's two children, James and Kirsty, had made an appeal through a local newspaper to find her where they said, Someone knows what has happened to our mum. We miss her so much. The police had an open missing persons file for Susan, but it had no success in finding what had happened to her. 31-year-old Shelley Armitage lived with her boyfriend in the Allerton part of Bradford, just three streets from the home of Suzanne Blameris, who was a friend of Shelley's. When Shelley didn't return home from work as expected, her boyfriend reported her missing, well, a few days later. He too had a heroin habit, and he relied on Shelley to bring in the money to fund their addictions. For Shelley not to come home was especially unusual, as she'd recently bought a lovely puppy, which she absolutely adored, and she spent as much time as possible with her new pet. Shelley was last seen on CCTV when she was walking up and down Bradford's main red light area of Sunbridge Road on the 26th of April. Shelley, her mum of two children, went missing after leaving her flat three hours earlier with a friend, and she stopped for some food on nearby City Road before heading to the red light area to sell sex. Shelley was well aware of the danger she faced on the streets as she'd been working in Huddersfield and then Bradford since she was 15 years old. Like Susan, Shelley also struggled with alcohol and drugs, and she was described as a much-loved daughter and sister, and a bubbly, lovely person. Friends spoke of her big smile and her big heart, and she'd spoken constantly of her desire to leave the streets of Bradford and go and become a model. Police had begun searching storage areas and bins close to where she was last seen, but there was no sign of her. But shortly after Suzanne's remains were found, the body of Shelley was found nearby in the River Eyre. Police recovered just the worst video camera footage of a naked and seemingly lifeless Shelley trussed up in Griffiths' flat. On her back, in black spray paint, Griffiths had written, My Sex Slave. On the video, Griffiths could be heard saying, I am Van Pariah. I am the bloodbath artist. Here's a model who's assisting me. Two crossbows covered in blood were found in the flat and detectives believed that one of these was used to murder Shelley. Shelley's dad, Darrell, later described how he had to identify his daughter just from a photograph of her head. He was not allowed to see the rest of her body because it was just too awful. He also watched the CCTV footage that showed Griffiths disposing of Shelley's body, he said. The CCTV showed him walking out of the station with a rucksack on his back, then going back without it. As I watched it, I was thinking, my Shelley's probably in that rucksack, 
It sent me numb. It was like I was in a living nightmare. What he did was unspeakable. I just went numb with the horror of it. I just can't take in the evil of Griffiths. To kill, photograph a victim and cut up bodies is just beyond evil. In my mind, he is worse than the Yorkshire Ripper. If we need any more of a graphic picture of the horror that was suffered by Shelley in her final moments, and the cruel fact that only part of her body has been recovered, it was there to be seen at her funeral when her brother Carl carried a two-foot-six-inch coffin into the church with the remains of his sister. As for Susan, unfortunately for her family, there was no sign of her body, but there were traces of her blood along with Shelley's in Griffiths' flat. He admitted killing both Susan and Shelley and dismembering their bodies in his bathroom, which he described as being like a slaughterhouse. Griffiths stood in the dock for his trial, wearing a grey tracksuit, accompanied by five security guards. When each of the three murder charges were put to him by the clerk, he replied in a quiet voice, guilty. The judge told the court that the defendant's mental health had been carefully examined and there was no question that he was fit to plead. There were terrible scenes in the court as family and friends sobbed as the prosecutor outlined details of the murders. At one point, a woman yelled out, You fucking bastard, as the grim details were revealed. Other family members and friends had to leave the court as the details were just too distressing to hear. On the 21st of December 2010, Griffiths was convicted of all three murders and sentenced to life imprisonment with a whole life order, meaning he would spend the rest of his life in prison. The judge told the court, The circumstances of these murders are so wicked and monstrous, they leave me in no doubt that the defendant should be kept in prison for the rest of his life. He commented how the pleas from Griffiths had been entered without any remorse at all. And the families of the three women killed by Griffiths gave their reaction. Suzanne Blamiri's mum, Nikki, said, I wake up and think about my bright, articulate and much-loved daughter every day and I am serving a life sentence as a result of what this man has done. Jill Armitage, Shelley's mum, said, Her death will haunt us for the rest of our lives. And Susan's mum, Christine, pleaded with Griffiths to say what he had done with their loving daughter. Our lives will never be the same without her, she said. Detective Superintendent Singh of West Yorkshire Police described Griffiths as heartless and controlling, saying, I'm extremely pleased that Griffiths has been convicted of what can only be described as a series of horrifying crimes. He said at this stage they had no evidence to link Griffiths to any other crimes, but they would be in contact with other forces around the UK to see if anything develops. And the CPS person in Yorkshire said, Few people in Bradford are likely to forget the horrific events which led to Griffiths being arrested and charged with these murders. Whilst in prison, Griffiths has occasionally hit the headlines again for trying to take his own life, going on hunger strike and making friends with other repulsive prisoners. It transpired that the police had an interest in Griffiths before he killed and they had been watching him for at least two years before the events that were spoken about today and had already seized hunting weapons from him. 
they'd made contact with the housing association, which owns the flat in which Griffiths lived, after he was seen reading books on dismemberment. The housing association agreed with the police sharing the concerns, and they fitted a better CCTV system in anticipation of something happening. At the time of the murders, it said that police didn't have the evidence for an ASBO against Griffiths. Now it is of course easy to criticise the police in this investigation, and many have done, but as we discuss on this podcast so often, working in the police is such a tough job, and with nowhere near enough resources, proactive preventative policing is incredibly difficult when there is no time to investigate the crimes that have already been committed. Speaking after the trial, Susan Rushworth's mum, Christine, revealed how Susan's dad, Barry, died a month after Griffiths' arrest, leaving Christine a widow. Christine said, With Barry, at least I have the solace of being able to go to the cemetery to be with him. That's the thing I haven't got when it comes to Susan. I go on holiday a lot for a change of scene and have just come back from Corfu. I'm going abroad again in a few weeks because it takes my mind away from Susan and wondering where she is. People talk about the death penalty, but I don't believe in it because Griffiths still has secrets. He knows where my Susan is, and if he was dead, then there'll be no chance of him giving up that information. And if he won't tell me, then I'd still rather him be alive because at least he is suffering every day in a prison, just like I am suffering every day because of him. As you probably know, I'm not that keen on much discussion around the killers preferring to focus on the victims of the crimes. But I think, unfortunately, in this case for Griffiths, we do need to make an exception and look at a little more detail at just what might have made him take the actions he did. If you followed this case at all, you probably recall that at a previous court hearing, when asked his name, he responded, the crossbow killer to the gasps of astonishment in the courtroom. This suggests, doesn't it, he was seeking some sort of sick notoriety. As I'd say are the claims that he made that he ate uncooked parts of his victims. Did he really just kill for the publicity to be someone? Some certainly think so, and of course many, many have passed their opinions about him. So let's take a look at a few. One highly respected commentator, criminologist Professor David Wilson, who has had access to tapes in which Griffiths is heard taunting his former girlfriend, who he had a child with, he says that the killer is a misogynist with a narcissistic personality disorder. He is somebody who is a wannabe. He is desperately keen for fame, even infamy. John George Haig attended his school and Griffiths and all the boys at the school were told of this link with a serial killer. Wilson thinks there's a sense of Griffiths copying Haig, Peter Sutcliffe, who is of course also from Bradford, and the Ipswich killer, Steve Wright. If a woman wanted to end a relationship with him, he would regard it as some kind of criticism that he couldn't accept. Griffiths would always try to deflect blame onto his former partner, a psychological trick called neutralisation. When he talked about himself, he used very powerful language and was always domineering. His favourite books on the Amazon website included Goodbye Lizzie Borden, 
the story and the trial of America's most famous murderess, and patterns of vengeance, cross-cultural homicide in the North American fur trade. Wilson also believes that Griffiths had read his book, Hunting for Evil, about the crimes of Steve Wright in Ipswich, and had adopted a similar method to Wright by placing two of his victims in water to destroy the DNA evidence. I've never come across a case of a student of criminology wanting to become an offender, he added. Wilson believes that the publicity was a huge thing for him and it was vital. He said the following. He would have been seriously upset when he was knocked off the front pages of newspapers by the Cumbrian mass killer Derek Bird. He simply wanted his 15 minutes of fame that he felt he deserved. Every aspect of his approach seemed to have some sort of significant meaning in this media approach that he developed. Even including the solicitor that he chose to represent him, this was Bradford law firm Lama McGill, the same solicitors used by Peter Sutcliffe. The question I imagine you're asking is, did Griffiths kill more people? It seems likely. Let's look at three people who may have been victims of Griffiths. 19-year-old mum of one, Rebecca Hall, was found dead in an alleyway behind a Bradford car park, just 800 metres from where Griffiths lived. And she was a sex worker who knew Griffiths and regularly sold sex to him at his flat. He was known to have been very excited to show his ex-partner the exact spot where she was found. But when quizzed about this murder after his arrest, he refused to answer any questions. Despite the arrest of a 37-year-old woman in 2019, Nobody has ever been charged with Rebecca's murder. The police have revealed they do hold two items of clothing containing DNA from the scene and the hope is that as technology advances, these may just reveal who killed Rebecca Hall. 32-year-old mum, Yvonne Fitt, is another possible victim of Griffiths. She was a sex worker active in both Bradford and Leeds and her last sighting alive was in Bradford on January the 16th, 1992. It was eight months later that her decomposing body was found, hidden in a shallow grave at Lindley Wood, which is about 13 miles north of Bradford. Yvonne had been stabbed. In a reappeal in 2019, the lead detective said, Yvonne was a daughter, a sister, and a young mother with a life ahead of her. Her own mother, who spoke emotionally about her daughter during the Crime Watch show, died not knowing who did this to her daughter. Yvonne was brutally killed and then left without any dignity. Despite the passage of time, we remain committed as ever to getting justice for her and her family. Was Yvonne a victim of Griffiths? And if we look at one other potential victim, Dawn Shields. In his police interview after being arrested, Griffiths had spoken about Sheffield saying, Peter Sutcliffe came a cropper in Sheffield, so did I, but at least I got out of the city. Had he killed 19-year-old mum Dawn Shields in Sheffield? She was just 19 years old when she disappeared in May 1994 from the city's red light district in Broomhall. Her naked body was discovered a week later just outside town by a National Park ranger. Dawn had suffered head injuries She'd been strangled and was buried under some rocks. As yet, nobody has been charged with her murder. And there are many others 
who have been considered as potential victims of Griffiths, but so far he has only faced a jury for three murders. And sadly, based on the victims he did choose, if he has killed others involved in sex work, there is a good chance that a number of them won't even have been reported missing. So what do you make of what we've heard over these last two weeks? It is, of course, a terrible story of three women whose lives, dreams and ambitions were cut short by a man who seemed intent on killing for the sake of it. An inadequate person who wanted to achieve some sort of significance and thought that he could find it by these means. But let's just pause and consider how easy it was for Griffiths to claim his victims. The women selling sex on the streets. It was 2000 in Ipswich when Steve Wright killed five sex workers in circumstances familiar to Griffiths. A man who'd spent time with sex workers, gaining their trust and then striking. Some of the women working the streets spoke with journalists after Griffiths' arrest, with one saying the following about Griffiths. Sometimes he'd cooked her dinner, washed her clothes and let her sleep on the sofa when she'd nowhere to go. He was like a brother to me. At the time, we thought he was just a numpty, she says. Quite a lot of girls took advantage of him, robbing him when he offered to score for them. And back to Professor David Wilson, the criminologist, who said, Griffiths and Wright consciously zeroed in on these voids and the invisible women society had pushed between the cracks. They knew that they could do whatever they pleased. They killed because it was easy. And once again, and I know I go on about this, when reading a lot of the coverage about Suzanne, Susan and Shelley, three women who had made some poor decisions, as you and I both have in our lives, but died because of this. The work they did to support their heroin addiction is not something to criticise them for. Ahead of their work, they were mothers, daughters, sisters and friends. As one local, furious about the representation of street workers in the media, said, These women don't deserve to die. They are all somebody's daughter, yet they're described as prostitutes, and it makes it so sleazy. Exactly right. And as we finish today, our thoughts are with the friends and family of Suzanne, Susan and Shelley. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story and any other aspect of UK true crime, please head to Facebook and join over 90,000 of us who talk UK true crime 24-7. And to support the show, please do head to patreon.com for bonus episodes and other exclusive content. A huge thank you to the latest members of this community. That's Kelly Kiriakou and Steve Brown. Thank you so much for your support and the latest in over 50 bonus episodes is live later today. Just head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime to join us. Let me also update you on Bloodhound Gin. In my video tomorrow on all my social channels, you will see as I go behind the scenes with Simon, co-owner, to discover the magic art of distilling. Percy has an incredible setup with this amazing machine, it's really Jules Verne, it's dubbed Fill the Still. It's a hybrid 230-litre copper pot, and it's the first in Scotland, made by Müller in Germany. I can still feel Simon's excitement 
when he explained just how it works, and it even cleans itself pretty much. Clever Phil. So look out for those videos tomorrow. Okay, so that's all for me for another week. So until we speak again next week, please do take it easy. Still no football. And remember, despite all the others, stay classy. Cheerio for now. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.